Well, good morning. It is great uh, to be here back in our regular place of worship. And uh, as Richard announced earlier, I'm really looking forward to the time when we can be together again as an entire church family. It's been a delight already this morning even to be uh, seeing some familiar faces on our audiovisual team and our uh, worship team. I'm very, very grateful for all the work that they put in to getting us ready. I think we realize that we are living in grave times. Uh, these are uh, in some ways fearful times for many people, a worldwide pandemic that has brought our lives and our economy to a standstill. The National Center for Health Statistics reported this past week that the death rate in America has gone up 30% in the month of April alone. Now, obviously, not all of those are coronavirus cases, but it does speak to the level of, of, uh, of desperation, you might say, the level of, of uh, concern, maybe even fear that grips so many people as they just face uh, such a crisis as this, even with all of our advances in medical care and all of our advances in technology, that we are still so susceptible to something like a virus. It's, of course, not the first time that America has gone through something like this. Many of us know that 100 years ago, 1918, the great, the great uh, influenza pandemic, which was estimated to have killed uh, 500,000 people in, in the United States, uh, millions and millions across the world. In terms of uh, modern ratios with our own population, that would translate into almost one and a half million deaths from such a virus. Right now, for the coronavirus, we stand at about 86,000 deaths. And of course, the great influenza was not just a killer, it was a terrorizer. It was something that struck not just the uh, young and the old, the vulnerable, it actually struck the young and the healthy. People reported feeling fine uh, one evening and maybe uh, a small sniffle, and by the next day, they would be dead. It was not uncommon for blood to be found in their spittle as they coughed uh, violently again and again. Blood would run from their noses. It would actually ooze from their ears. They would lose feeling in their feet and their hands as this virus attacked them. And it wasn't so much the virus that would kill them as much as it was their immune system. It's why the young and the healthy were the ones who were suffering because they had the strongest immune systems. But it would trigger such a response in their immune system, they would have a cytokine storm, as virologists call it. The body flooding itself with toxins to fight off the virus would actually eventually kill itself in such a violent reaction. Thankfully... We live in times with exceptional technology, exceptional health care, exceptional facilities. But 100 years ago in the great influenza, virology itself was a newly formed uh, field of study. Medical research was just figuring out things like pathology. Uh, those few things that they were able to figure out was just a small part of the victory. Uh, having figured it out, they then had to figure out how to treat it Certain vaccines could only be produced and stored at certain temperatures. There was not widespread refrigeration and transportation technologies. Most places were undertrained and understaffed. Hospitals had little to offer 
patients in terms of medications, much less things like oxygen. And so it was a it was a lack of infrastructure as much as it was a lack of technology. And so people suffered enormously just a hundred years ago when something like this hit society. And of course, as you go back through history, through the years, there have always been these pandemics that struck societies, that struck cultures, that had in itself primitive healthcare systems. They brought great pain and suffering. They brought fear and panic across nations. People lived all the time with the fear of getting too close to anyone who was sick. People who were sick were typically isolated outside the walls of the city. When you go all the way back to ancient Israel, disease was rampant, mortality rates were high. Infant mortality alone was 28% between the years of birth and five years of age. Almost one in 10 pregnancies ended in stillbirth. And the expectancy Life expectancy for the average person was little more than 50 years. Ancient records indicate that epidemics like what we're facing now actually swept across Europe about every five to 10 years in the ancient world. One of the largest well-documented one was the Antonine Plague, which struck around the year 165. It was a smallpox plague, and at one point, 2,000 people in a single day died in the city of Rome itself. It's believed that eventually this plague killed one in four people in Europe. Besides pandemic, people suffered enormously. Skeletal remains that have been studied found that there was chronic lead poisoning throughout society. A study in 1992 revealed that in the bones of people that were uh, looked at during the uh, Roman Empire, they had on average, 10 times more the amount of lead in their bones than what you would find in a typical American. This, in turn, would have led to all kinds of uh, issues and diseases. And on the other side of that, people at the same time were typically iron deficient or anemic, leaving them with the constant inability to process oxygen, which would have left them uh, continually fatigued, weak, short of breath, in everything that they did. If you look beyond even those things, there were large-scale killers. Typhoid was rampant, caused by salmonella. It spread through water supplies and close contact with people who were infected. Typhoid killed one-third of the population of Athens in the year 430 B.C. In fact, it was a killer all the way up till 1942 when we finally had developed something called penicillin that could treated. More deadly than typhoid was malaria. Josephus tells us that, uh, that Israel, particularly the area around the Sea of Galilee, was rampant with malaria. People were gripped with fear when fever came upon them. We read in the scripture numerous times Jesus having to heal people of great fever, probably malarian fever. It was a killer in the ancient world, and it swept across the land. And then there's tuberculosis. Ancient Greeks described it with the word thesis, which literally, mean to, literally means to shrivel up with intense heat, as if placed next to a flame. 
The Romans, in their Latin language, called it consumere, which literally means to eat or devour. It came to be known as consumption uh, in the English vernacular because it was associated as someone being eaten from the inside, primarily because of the rapid weight loss that was associated with it. People with tuberculosis would have chronic, uncontrollable cough. They would have fevers and chills and sweats, blood-stained mucus constantly coming out of them until their body literally just dies out of exhaustion or suffocation. Nothing to be done. Nothing to be done in the horror of this disease. Paleontologists have also discovered that many people suffer from osteoarthritis, probably from the constant a burden of having to lift heavy weights and carry them back and forth across long distances, whether it's bringing water from a well or a river or just transporting heavy buckets of grain or whatever it was in the manual labor-intensive environment that they were in. Skeletal remains reveal numerous micro-fractures in people's spines that they would have had to live with day in and day out. There's evidence of abundant compressed and collapsed vertebrae that must have caused people untold pain as they live their daily life. Hyperextension, hyperextension and torquing of the lower back. All kinds of, of uh, uh, skeletal issues among people. There were rudimentary ways to set bones, but they were rudimentary at best. Rarely were people ever fully healed from a broken bone. On top of this, there was widespread cases of gout, which is a sort of inflammatory arthritis and would have debilitated people, immobilized people for uh, days, if not weeks on end. Droughts and floods meant that you constantly were battling malnourishment and just the, the feeling of being, uh, um, uh, I guess you might say, uh, under-energized. Parasites would come. They were common, especially tapeworms. There was a particular uh, disease called bilharziasis, which came from a flatworm. It was a disease that infected the bladder eventually with inflammation. Small tumors and bladder stones would form, and the result would be that the sufferer would continually be passing blood-tinged urine, mucus, and pus. Dysentery, was all over the place, intestinal disorders. On top of that, because of the lack of medical care, because of the lack of technology, there was a constant uh, dealing with, you might say, external uh, issues. Constant warfare, hazardous occupations, unsafe working conditions meant that people were uh, continually being injured along the way, Add to that the congenital diseases which were essentially untreatable. People were born with all kinds of issues and it left folks with multiplied deformed bodies. Almost a complete lack of anything to do so that any minor injury or broken bone probably left you disabled for the rest of your life. Any person who's ever had a broken bone and has gone through modern treatment today has benefited from what would have been unavailable to most of the ancients. He may well have been a cripple. 
Robert Garland, in his book, The Eye of the Beholder, Deformity and Disability in Greco-Roman World, concludes that deformities and disabilities in antiquity were so common as to be the norm. People had no wheelchairs. They had no walkers. They had no sophisticated crutches. Most of them were relegated to nothing more but dragging themselves along in the soil and the dust of Palestine, begging along the way for mercy that anyone might feed them. If they had friends, they might have been carried on a cot from time to time, but they were mostly isolated, immobilized, no doubt lonely. There was, of course, widespread leprosy, which is well documented in the Bible and is being better understood even by paleontologists. There's obviously high reports in um, the Scripture, but also in the ancient uh, uh, fossil records. There's high reports of epilepsy in the ancient world. Some scholars believe that it is just a general term that was applied to all kinds of fits and reactions And more and more people are coming to the conclusion that the epilepsy was actually a result of a uh, massive number of of, uh, cases of brain cancer and tumor uh, along with typical uh, uh, nervous system problems that would cause epilepsy. But for all of this pain and suffering, there was very little that could be done. Very little that could help anyone. Nothing like what we have today. Nothing like the luxuries that we have today. Much less the coordination and the infrastructure that we have today to help us with treatments, to help us with cures. The Roman historian Pliny wrote that when they did have wounds, that one of their most common solutions was to take filthy, uncleaned wool, dip it in honey, and dab it onto the wound. More sophisticated would be to take the dirty wool and dip it in wine and put it on the wound. But that was about all that could be done. No stitches, no bandages. If you had any kind of internal problems, the common solution was an uncooked egg yolk. That was the best they had. Obviously, they did use wine and vinegar from time to time to settle upset uh, stomachs or to even uh, treat or without knowing maybe what they were doing, disinfect some wounds. Eye problems were generally treated with a salve made by boiling a liver in water and then pasting on the solution to the eyeball. And of course, there were all kinds of herbal remedies. But in most cases, uh, historians have discovered that the most common solution for any problem was simply to eat clay. They just copied what they saw animals doing. That was the level of their health care. They just went out and scooped a bunch of dirt, a bunch of clay, and ate it. The chalkier, the better, Pliny says. In severe cases, they might have bloodlet someone, cutting them and hoping that uh, the disease or whatever it might be would bleed out. If you had head problems, they practiced trephination, which is literally drilling a hole into your head. Romans actually developed a bow that they could use to spin an arrow back and forth as a drill so that the arrowhead would bore into the skull and they could treat anyone who had migraines 
or any kind of mental disorder or epileptic seizures. Thousands and thousands of these skulls have been discovered with holes drilled in their head. In so many ways, we live in such a privileged world, but in so many ways, the ancient world was a painful world. It was a world filled with agony. It was filled with disease. It was filled with suffering. It was filled with death. People adapted to it. They lived with it. They knew pain. Almost everyone did. They experienced it. Death and deformity surrounded them every day. It was the environment in which they lived and walked and worked. All of that makes the statement that we read in Matthew chapter 4, verses 25 through, 23 through 25, so dramatic. This is what Matthew says concerning the ministry of Jesus Christ. Matthew 4, 23, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick and those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. All of that makes perfect sense when you understand the context and the world in which people lived. When you lived with that kind of pain and that kind of sorrow and that kind of suffering and then a man appears out of nowhere and he, with a word, can heal all of your illnesses, all of your pains, all of your diseases. When you have all of that sort of lifelong suffering built in and all that sort of hopelessness and all that resignation that you are left to whatever kind of chronic problem, whatever kind of debilitating problem that you have, that you don't have the hope of a hospital and a doctor and a vaccine or anything around the corner. And then you hear that there's someone up in Galilee who's healing people left and right. You can understand the impact that it would have had on a society. I mean, the kind of, the kind of fear, the kind of concern that grips our society is nothing compared to what ancients would have experienced. Nothing compared to the kind of fear, the kind of suffering that they would have had. Matthew gives us this short summary, very short indeed, but there's a lot in it. In fact, this probably encompasses more than a year of Jesus' life. He says that Jesus was going about all of Galilee. Josephus tells us that there were some 204 cities and villages throughout Galilee with at least 15,000 people. And if Jesus traveled to one of them every day, it would have taken him between seven and eight months alone if he took just the Sabbath off. But the reality is he probably spent about a year and a half. He probably spent uh, maybe twice that amount of time during this Galilean ministry. He wouldn't have lingered too long in any of these cities. In fact, Luke 4, verse 20, excuse me, Luke 4, verse 42, 
We have a little snapshot of what it might have looked like in each town. Luke writes, he says, quote, when it was day, he departed and went, in, went into a desolate place. Mark tells us that he would do this every morning for the sake of prayer. So he rises early in the morning and goes out to pray. And then, Luke says, the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him. preaching, stirring up, uh, no doubt, all kinds of commotion, all kinds of excitement, healing everyone in their town. And then right as they sort of uh, reach the fever pitch, begging him to stay, he would say, no, I have to go. I've got to walk to the next town, and then walk to the next town, and then walk to the next town. Day after day, hour after hour, he would walk, no doubt, for hours at a time, arrive at the town, go to the synagogue, begin to speak to people, begin to teach. He would teach for hours, I'm sure. And then along the way, he would receive their sick and their disabled so that they would be healed. More and more would bring their sick and their disabled from all the villages, from all the houses, from everywhere around. And then in the next day or two, he would rise up, he would spend time in prayer, and then he would begin the journey to the next village. And this was his life. It was, I'm sure, a grind, day after day after day. But it's important that we know this. In fact, this is not the only time that Matthew gives us this kind of a summary. If you have your Bibles, you can look with me over at Matthew chapter 9, a few pages over in Matthew 9.35, near the end of that chapter. And you'll notice again, Matthew will tell us, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. This is what a day in the life of Christ looked like. But these, we need to understand, these are not just random statements by Matthew, sort of stuffed in there like we would on a term paper to try to hit some word count. These are strategic. These are, these are essential background pieces of information that Matthew places right before major sections of teaching or discourse by Jesus. Here in Matthew 4, he ends Matthew 4 by telling us this right before we get into Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the great Sermon on the Mount. Over in Matthew 9, he ends Matthew 9 by telling us essentially the same thing about Jesus' proclamation and healing ministry in order to prepare us for the great discourse in Matthew 10 on discipleship. And these were not intended to be some sort of fast forward across the meaningless parts of Jesus' life. These were vital, critical features of his life and ministry that are essential for you and I if we're going to listen rightly to the Sermon on the Mount or if we're to listen rightly to the discourses of Jesus. They prepare our hearts 
so that we can listen carefully and understand who it is and what it is that we're listening to in these teaching sections. This was a man who could, with a word or a touch, heal deformity and sickness and disease. He would have eradicated all panic. He would have eradicated all fear. He would have brought overwhelming joy. He would have opened up life. He would have opened up uh, camaraderie. He would have opened up opportunity for people who had been isolated, who had been gripped, who had been swallowed up with the, with the burdens of their deformities and their illnesses in a world where people had no recourse to medicines no hope in doctors and hospitals, no vaccines, no antibiotics. They had no sophisticated surgery centers. They couldn't take x-rays or MRIs to know why they had the pain that they had inside of them. Just massive suffering steeped in fear and constant death all around you. And on the stage steps a man, Jesus, who travels around to all of the villages and on the spot... He cleanses and clears all diseases. Matthew wants us to know this and understand this and remember this before we hear him speak. Why? Because Jesus' ministry authenticated him. It verified him. It demonstrated that he was not just some other teacher. He wasn't just some other rabbi. He wasn't just some other preacher. He was different. So much more different than me or any other preacher. So much more different than you or anyone else who might happen to share their opinion on the way that they think you ought to live your life or the way that they think you ought to do things. He was so much different than any of those people. He was so much different than any of your authorities, so much different than any of your teachers and any of your doctors and any of your politicians or anyone. He was so different than all of those things because he was validated, he was verified with power to heal people. This was a major difference between he and John the Baptist. John 1041 tells us that John the Baptist never performed any miracles. He never performed any signs. But Jesus did. He removed suffering. He alleviated pain. He cured diseases. He eliminated illness. He wiped away fear and panic. And all of this pointed to something unique about him. And that's why Matthew places these brief accounts right before each of these discourses because the miracles validated his teaching. This is the purpose of miracles, by the way. It's the purpose of healing. It's why God didn't heal through other people. It's why John the Baptist himself wasn't even able to heal. It's not as if every super spiritual person in the world or in history had the ability to heal. God was very selective in those that he allowed to heal because it was intended to validate someone as a spokesman for God. When God raised up Moses, he validated Moses through plagues, through miracles, 
And when God sent Jesus, he validated him through miracles, especially healing. You can see this if you have your Bibles and you go over to Luke chapter 7. And we read an account there, an incredible story in Luke 7, 11, where Jesus encounters a funeral procession of a young boy who had just died or died recently. And they were carrying him out for the burial and he was the only son of a widow who lived in a village called Nain. And Jesus observed the whole thing and Luke tells us that he had compassion on this dear widow. And so he intervenes in the whole scene and he actually raises her son from the dead. Now in Luke 7:18, we're told that some of the disciples of John the Baptist heard this. And they reported it John who had been locked up in prison at that time. And Luke tells us that John the Baptist calling two of his disciples sent them to the Lord saying, "Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another?" What's he doing? He's asking for confirmation. He's asking for validation. He wants to know, are you the one? Are you the Messiah? Are you, are you the one that we can count on? And, and, and he wants to be somehow reassured, somehow confirmed or validated in his interest. Well, then Luke tells us in Luke 7, 21, that in that very hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. And the poor have, good, have good, the good news preached to them. John wants validation. How does Jesus validate him? He validates him by miracles and healing. Later on, after Jesus is crucified and resurrected, he ascends back into heaven, and God pours out his Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Peter stands up and preaches the first great sermon of the church in Acts 2. And in verse 22 of that chapter, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. He was attested. He was validated. This is the way that you knew that he was unique. This is the way you knew that he was set apart. When Jesus was in Jerusalem earlier, you remember a man named Nicodemus had come to him secretly in the night and Nicodemus says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God for no one can do these signs unless God is with him. You're unique. You're different. No one else does these miracles. No one else is able to heal. But we know that you are different. You are set apart. You are validated. How? Because of these miracles. They validated him as the Messiah and they validated his message that's why Matthew places it here 
That's why God gives signs and wonders, as I said. That's why God gave signs and wonders to the apostles. Later, the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 2, verse 3, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? It was first declared by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. That would be the disciples. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. This is exactly what you see taking place. You turn over to the book of Acts, at the end of the book of Acts, and it says that God was validating or attesting to the message of the gospel with signs and wonders and miracles done by the hands of the apostles. At the end of chapter 4, with great power, they were demonstrating and preaching the gospel message. In Acts chapter 5, in verses 11, 12, 13, he talks about how with great power, the apostles were performing signs and wonders and miracles. Why is that? Because God gives miracles, particularly the gifts of healing, to his special messengers. Those who are declaring brand new revelation. Those who are bringing a new word from God. These signs and wonders and miracles validated these men as true spokesmen for God because not everyone can do them. Throughout history, people didn't just go and work miracles. It wasn't commonplace. These were unique. They were reserved for these people whom God was raising up to reveal new truth. And they were the ones who were preaching it. Had it not been for the miracles, they might have been ridden off as some schismatic, some heretic. They would have been looked upon as arrogant for wanting to add to the Word of God, and maybe rightly so. But the miracles validated them as genuine spokesmen. And in the case of Jesus, they validated Him as the Messiah. And Matthew wants us to understand that. Now, as I said earlier, this these few verses contain a lot. A year and a half of Christ's ministry. They basically summarize month after month, day after day of life in Jesus' ministry. They give us a snapshot, we might say, of the mission of the Messiah. The primary work that he came to accomplish in summary fashion. And we could break it down. If we were just to evaluate this short passage, if we were just to evaluate the mission of the Messiah, we could really break it down into two essential components of what he was trying to accomplish. The first is the proclamation, and the second is the preview of the kingdom. The proclamation of the kingdom of God, and then the preview of the kingdom of God. Let's look first in verse 23 and just take note of the proclamation of this kingdom. Matthew gives this brief summary that he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. This was the essence of Jesus' ministry. He came as a teacher. If you have no interest to sit for, for an extended period of time and listen to someone explain the gospel, explain the word of God, you would have had no interest in Jesus Christ. Because his primary 
mode, his primary purpose, the primary thing that he lived for day in and day out was to teach. And so he taught, and all the gospel writers placed their emphasis on this, that he came teaching. Back in verse 12, you remember it said that when he heard John was arrested, he withdrew into Galilee in verse 17. And from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Mark 1, verse 14, after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee and proclaimed the gospel of God, saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. Luke 4, verse 14, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. When he went to his hometown of Nazareth on his way back to Galilee, he picked up a scroll of Isaiah and read it on the Sabbath in the synagogue, and he read these words, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This was the essence of Jesus' ministry. It was a ministry of teaching. It was a ministry of proclamation. He was, as Matthew says, teaching and proclaiming. This, these two words, didaskon and keruson, sometimes people try to contrast them as if they're two different styles. They might even characterize modern day speakers as one, perhaps a teacher, meaning that he focuses maybe on a lot of details and analysis, and one of them a preacher, which I think basically means he yells a lot, uh, maybe with a lot of passion and sweating. But these aren't two different styles. They're two different words for the same thing. One of the words focuses on the act of proclamation. The We might say the introduction or the announcement of good news. The other word focuses on the content of the proclamation or the explanation of the good news. Jesus was doing both. He was announcing and he was explaining the good news. And specifically, it was the good news of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom. That's basically what gospel means. It means good news. It was a major component of his message, this kingdom. In fact, it's used, the word kingdom is used 53 times in Matthew's 28 chapters. A major component of understanding Jesus and his message and his proclamation. In most cases, 32 out of those 53 times, it's a reference to what Matthew calls the kingdom of heaven meaning the kingdom that originates in heaven as opposed to the earth. It doesn't come from the strength and the power or the organization or the military might and the economic uh, uh, acumen, the economic wealth of any group, of any resource on the earth. It doesn't originate from any of that. It's a kingdom that's not characterized by pain and sorrow. It's not characterized by hate and malice. It's not characterized by deception and betrayal. It's a kingdom from heaven, which means that it's a kingdom marked by peace and safety, 
fairness and justice, love and truth. That's the kingdom he proclaimed. And it was good news. In fact, it's great news. For a people who have been gripped their whole life with fear, with pain, with anguish, with disease, with torment, with people who've had to live under the oppression of of rulers who've had to be taken advantage of by others time and time again, who've had to slog through life just to make it to the end of the week, just to put food on the table one more time. This was great news. This was terrific news. Both Jesus and John the Baptist were announcing this. Back in Matthew 3, 2, you remember, it was John who was preaching, we're told, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 4, 17, this is the way Jesus started his ministry. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, when they use that word at hand, they don't mean that it has arrived or that it had begun operation. The word at hand is used 17 times in the Bible. It basically means to draw near or be impending. And you can hear it if you just listen to some of the other places where it's being used. For example, Matthew 26, verse 45. He came to the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane and he said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. The next verse, rise, let us be going. See, the betrayer is at hand. Luke 21, 20, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, know that its desolation is at hand. Romans 13, 12, the night is far gone, the day is at hand. Let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. James 5, 8, you also be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. 1 Peter 4, 7, the end of all things is at hand. So it's obvious as you look at this, that in every case it's talking about something that's imminent, something that hasn't begun but something that is about to begin, something that is about to happen, something that was very near, very close, but had not yet started. The word is engekikin, excuse me, engekikin. It means on the brink, not actually having arrived, but on the brink. And this is what Jesus was proclaiming. This is what he was telling people. The kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of heaven is, is on the brink. But to understand his message, you have to also have to understand the other part. Because you really can't understand it without understanding the command to repent. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Repentance was the prerequisite for the arrival of this kingdom. You remember Nicodemus was the one who heard this in John 3, 3. Jesus tells him, unless one is born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. 
God was not going to bring the kingdom to an unrepentant people. He was not going to bring the kingdom to an unrepentant Israel simply because they were Israel or simply because they had uh, ethnic heritage. They would need to be spiritually prepared. And so when Jesus preached this good news of the kingdom, it was always contingent on the spiritual requirements of the kingdom. It was contingent on their repentance. It's the same contingent message, by the way, that you find over and over again in the Old Testament. For example, in Luke 26, excuse me, Leviticus 26, Leviticus 26, verse 40 through 45, if they, that is Israel, confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers in their treachery that they committed against me and also in walking contrary to me so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies. If then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob. I will remember my covenant with Isaac. I will remember my covenant with Abraham and I will remember the land. But the land shall be abandoned by them and enjoy its Sabbaths while it lies desolate without them and they shall make amends for their iniquity because they've spurred my rules. Their soul has abhorred my statutes. And yet for all of that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not spurn them. Neither will I abhor them so as to destroy them completely or utterly and break my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. But I will, for their sake, remember the covenant with their forefathers, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I may be their God. I am the Lord. So Jesus' message was nothing different than the same message that Israel had heard time and again in the Old Testament. Obviously, throughout the Old Testament, Israel failed time and again to meet the requirement of repentance. And when Jesus came and preached that the kingdom of heaven is near, once again, they failed to repent as Jesus had commanded them to. And so while the kingdom came near, it never arrived fully. That's why you see Jesus continually teaching that the, son, uh, the kingdom is still something in the future. For example, over in Matthew 6.10, Jesus teaches us that when you pray, you are to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But just because the kingdom has not fully arrived with Jesus' first coming doesn't mean that it's any less likely and it certainly doesn't mean that it's any less glorious it doesn't make the kingdom any less good news it is still a glorious message it is still a glorious truth it's a glorious hope that the kingdom is still coming it is our hope it is our glory all of this is why Jesus's message is called the gospel of the kingdom it was the good news of the kingdom. It was the hope of the kingdom. It was the promise of the kingdom. That the misery of this world is not all that there is. That the misery of their broken bodies and their disease, that's not all that there is. That God had promised a restoration of all things. And for those 
who are willing to accept Jesus Christ, for those who are willing to repent of their sins, the kingdom not only comes near, but they are welcomed to enter it when it arrives. Acceptance of Christ obviously is still the key. Israel in the time of Christ missed that. And so they missed the arrival of the kingdom. They took their king who was there to announce the kingdom and they actually crucified him. His first coming, he was humbly humiliated by his people. But the kingdom will come near again in his second coming. And when it comes this time, he'll come as the judge He'll come as the one with the rod of iron to execute judgment on all those who rejected the kingdom. It's not here yet, but we have some idea about what it's going to be like. Because Jesus didn't just proclaim it, he previewed it. He gave us a sneak peek into that kingdom by healing every disease. And we'll look at that in more detail next week. Let's close with a word of prayer. Our gracious King and mighty God, we are filled with joy and hope at your kingdom, knowing that it could come at any moment, knowing that like a thief in the night, our Lord may come back. He will wipe away all of our agony. He'll wipe away all of our disease and all of our pain. We are so grateful to have the hope of the kingdom, to know the good news of the kingdom. We also know that we've been called to proclaim it just as he did, to point people to the Messiah, the one who both demonstrated it and the one who revealed it. So, Lord, make us messengers of the kingdom. Make us proclaimers of the kingdom. Even in this time of pandemic, may we point people to a day, to an era, when we will not have to suffer any of these things. Because our king will have come, and he will have brought his kingdom, a kingdom of hope and joy, of peace and safety, a kingdom of rich fulfillment, a kingdom of health and prosperity, a kingdom of justice and truth. We long for that. And so just as you taught us, we pray, your kingdom come. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.